clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And so, friends, the gospel is a manner of life that is worthy for us to pursue. But the gospel isn't just the idea of us receiving joy in life. It's also the idea of us suffering for the sake of God. And so if you're here this morning, you might be going through a period of suffering. I want to encourage you with Paul's words. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in the gospel, but that you should suffer for it as well. So the gospel is the the central message to the church. And as I described our our D groups that are going to be coming up in this winter, what we're going to pursue here is that a gospel-centered church, a a church that involves itself in every aspect around the gospel, is not just a gospel church on paper, it's a gospel church in practice. And you're probably thinking to yourself this morning, why are you saying all these things as an introduction to John chapter 1? Because, friends, here, Jesus calls the first disciples to follow him. And as they follow him, the gospel changes their life. And if you are going to follow Jesus this morning, whether it's for the first time or whether you're following him again and again, week after week, I want you to hear this news. The gospel will change your life. And it will change this church. And it will change it for the good and glory of God. And so the things that we're going to face together are going to be centered around the gospel. And every question of who we are as Hebrew Church of Hope has to come back to how does the gospel impact this community and this church for God's good and for God's glory. So John 1, looking at verses 35 through 42 first, the word of God says this. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus, and he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who, was, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so this is the first introduction to Uh, individuals following Jesus. And so let's just be reminded again of John the Baptist and his witness. In, In verse 29, it says, Behold, the Lamb of God who is come to take away the sins of the world. And again, it tells us the very next day in verse 35, the next day, John the Baptist, this is not John the gospel writer, John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples. So John the Baptist has gathered a following of people who have heard the message that he has been proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and be baptized. There have been people who have been responding to this news that God is coming and his kingdom is at hand, and they're responding by being baptized, saying, 
hey, we know we have sin, but we are being cleansed in preparation for God to come. And so uh, from this group, it tells us that there are two of his disciples who are with him. And uh, we know at least one of the names from the later verses where it tells us that one of those two individuals was Andrew. Some scholars debate on who is the other guy. There's not a whole lot of information from the text, but I tend to lean towards thinking this is actually John the Gospel writer. Um, And so as they are with John the Baptist, he, he sees Jesus walking with him, and he says again, Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist stays on this this same message and repeats it again and again. Here's the Lamb of God who has come to take away sin. What he's really proclaiming, friends, is the kingdom that I have proclaimed, the God of the universe who I've told you is on his way. Here he is, friends. Behold the Lamb of God, right? Have you ever been in a situation where people are like, I want to see God, I want to know God, and you're like, here he is, right? He's right here. Like, open your Bible and look. It's right here, friends, right? This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's saying, friends, look, it's Jesus. This is the rescuer who has come. He is the one who is more mighty than I am, the one whose sandal I can't even untie. He is here and he has come to rescue God's people from their sin. And so then we we find out that in verse 37, two of the disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Right? And so there's some questions that come from this from scholars. They say, well, are these two guys just like totally abandoning John the Baptist, right? This is kind of like the idea of like, like the band groupie, right? So the band person comes in, they're like, man, I really like their music. Then they hear other music and they, they run to that band. They're like, ah, oh, bye, see you later. That, that's better than what I was getting from this group of people. And so they ask, well, was John the Baptist only offering something that was like appealing on a level because they saw the power of God at hand and then they said, hey, look, Here's the more mighty one. We should just run to him because he's got something better to offer. And what we would say is the Bible is not giving us that kind of answer. In fact, these two disciples aren't just abandoning John for the sake of the new shiny message in the person of Jesus. They're abandoning John. They're leaving him through his instruction. Through his instruction. John is going to tell us in John 3, John the Baptist, he'll say he must increase and I must decrease. A group of his followers will come to him and say, oh, John, look at Jesus' influence. Look at how cool he is. Look at how mighty he is. Should we continue to follow you? What should we do? Like all of these people are leaving your side to go and follow Jesus. And John's answer is, this is the way it needs to be. This is how it's supposed to happen. So John understands that God has sent him for a time to pave the way But ultimately, his life's purpose is not to gain followers for himself, but to point others to God. And really, Christian, that's your life's purpose, is to point other people to the Lord and tell them to follow Jesus. And so the two disciples, Andrew and I think John, are obedient to this call. And so Jesus sees them, they're walking with him. Verse 38, he turns and he says to them, what are you seeking? And and this question can kind of be seen in two different lights. The first is in the light of the narrative. He can be kind of like asking the question of, what are you thinking? What's up? Can I help you? Right? This is like the the little kid that follows you around by the hip. You turn and they're there, right? 
turn over here. They're there, right? They're, they're always right there. Your, your best friend, like, following you around, right? Rachel and I always, like, when we're walking through Walmart, it's kind of funny because uh, there will be times where I don't think she's really looking and she just keeps following me. And so I'll be like, hmm, should I take a, a little, little detour here and go this way? Or she'll be kind of, like, walking into me. My sister Sarah does that. Have you guys noticed that? She, like, when you walk side by side with her, she just, like, starts walking into you because she just, like, wants to be with you. And you're like, hey, I'm going to run into the road if you keep pushing me this way. This is not cool. <laughs> so Jesus turns to them and says, what are you thinking? You're here. Can I help you? Right? So it can be seen in that light. But Jesus is asking them a deeper question than just like, what do you want from me? He's asking them, what do you want in life? What are you seeking? What are you seeking? This isn't just the idea of like, hey, what's up? But the idea of you're following me, you're with John the Baptist, now you're coming to me. What do you want to see in your life? How do you want to see God at work? And their response is, Rabbi, where are you staying? This is a really smart response from these two disciples. Through the rest of John's gospel, they won't necessarily be painted in a very smart light, so we need to take advantage of this moment. As they answer, as they ask Jesus' question, first they address him by saying, Rabbi. And the ESV has this little parenthetical note where it says, which means teacher, right? Does your Bible have that? Where it says, which means teacher. That, that is one way to translate the Greek word that's here. There are other uh, renditions of this word which can actually mean master or almighty one. And so as they come to Jesus, they say, teacher or, or master or almighty one, where are you staying? Well, the, the conversation they want to have with Jesus is not just a conversation that can just be had on the side of the road. They want to hear the details of why God has sent him. And ultimately, Jesus will reveal them in time. But even at the cross, his disciples didn't fully understand why he had come and why God had sent him. So they ask him a question. They say, where are you staying? They want to spend time with him. They want to devote themselves to him, and they want to follow him. And he says to them, his response is, come and you will see. Come and you will see. And so the disciples, again, were obedient, and they stayed with him that whole night. And so I think this is interesting, because the gospel is an invitation, right? The, the gospel message is we tell people that Jesus has died for their sins, that he has been buried, that he was resurrected, and that through repentance and faith, we can now have a relationship with God. Really, the gospel is a message of come to Jesus, have your sin forgiven, but then live with Jesus and see God's glory at work in your life. See, the, the gospel isn't just a quick response. It's not the, the microwave meal that we can toss in and hit the button and hope that everything will come out okay. But really, the gospel is a message in which we, we go to Jesus, we receive forgiveness, and we receive that immediately, and we rejoice, but then we're invited to walk with Jesus on this lifelong journey where we continue to seek him, continue to seek God, and then see God's glory on display. So the gospel is indeed a message of come and you will see God at work. And, and so I, I don't know about you, but I've often had times where I've been sitting and having gospel conversations with folks, and they've said, well, how do I know that this will be all okay? And I can't tell them, 
well, you just, it will just be okay, right? They, they're always like, I want a guarantee. It's like when you sign up for a car, right? You, you buy a car, you want the warranty. How is this going to work? I want the coverage up to 150,000 miles, right? Not happening, right? But you go in, and, and these people, they want guarantees that they're going to see God at work, and all you can do is tell them, seek him. Seek him and trust him and watch him at work because God will not always arrive in our timing. His timing is what works best. It's not just what we want to see in the immediate. We, we oftentimes put God into some sort of formula where we think, hey, if we do these things, then it will happen this way in my time. Well, friend, we're not God. So we need to give up on our, our, uh, our obligation or our responsibility that we put on God to follow us as humans. That's not the way it works in this relationship with him. We seek him and he works in his time. We seek him. We walk with him in obedience. But again, we have to look to the Bible to tell us that things might go really well and they might not go so well. Like, think of Job, right? Who did everything in the right way, who pursued God, who was a holy man, who lived his life for God's glory, and yet God stripped everything away from him for his good, right? For his good. This is the idea of what Paul's writing to those Philippians. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that it would give glory to God and point others to Jesus, knowing that you've been chosen to believe, but also to suffer. So the gospel is an invitation where you will see God's glory, but that's not a guarantee that it's always going to be enjoyable, It's a guarantee that God will be with you. So we find joy not in knowing that everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns, but we find joy in knowing that God is with us and that he will not forsake us, that he will be faithful to carry us and to love us. But then let's see what happens next. In verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so Jesus invites Andrew and John to come and see what Jesus is doing, right? Come and see who I am and and how I'm going to work. And then what's their immediate response? They go and they're they're with Jesus, but then ultimately from following Jesus and walking with Jesus, they have to go and tell somebody else about this good news. So Andrew goes first to his brother Simon. And he says to Simon, Simon, we found the Messiah. I have to remind you of how Israelites saw the Messiah. The Messiah was a political figure who would come and rescue God's people by establishing power and might and glory. And so Andrew goes to Simon Peter and says, Simon, look, we have found the Messiah. You've got to come. You've got to come and see. So as Jesus invites us to walk with him, to come to him for forgiveness of sin, and then see God's glory at work in our life through joy and through suffering, we are sent to tell others to come and see Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and to see God's glory at work through joy and through suffering. 
And so Peter went. He went with Andrew, and he had to see this figure who had been promised to come to rescue the people of God and to establish an almighty kingdom. And his first encounter with Jesus is, I'm going to change your name. (laughs) You are now going to be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's actually the word that translates the rock. And some commentators would say that Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a conversation he's having with Peter right after he has this declaration that, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one who has come to rescue God's people. And so we see the beginning of this invitation. Come and follow Jesus. And then go to others and invite them to come and follow Jesus. This is the work of the gospel. And so how does this apply to us as the church? Friends, we are invited to follow Jesus, but what we need to take from this text is our commissioning to be sent out to invite others to follow Jesus. So we each have the opportunity every week, every day that God gives us to invite others into a relationship with God. This is the work of evangelism, right? We're sharing our faith. And there's no perfect way. There's no uh, exact way to share the gospel, but there's an exact message that we can proclaim that Jesus has died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the grave, and through repentance and faith, we can be right with God. We can all know that message. We can all proclaim that message. We can all call people to believe in that message. And so, just a few points of application I want to give you is first and foremost, would you start praying for unbelievers? I'm sure each one of us in this room has somebody that we know that doesn't know Jesus. We can pray for them. We can start praying that God would open their hearts to the message of the gospel. Because we can proclaim that message again and again and again, but they have to believe. And the only way that they will believe in the gospel is as if God starts his work through the Holy Spirit of regenerating their hearts and turning them towards him. So we have to trust God as we proclaim this message that he will set people's hearts afire for the sake of the gospel. So we can pray for unbelievers that we know. So I would encourage you this week, make a list of three people, three people that you know in your life that you can pray for that don't know Jesus and don't have a relationship with him. Second, I want to encourage you, talk about the gospel with unbelievers that you can influence. For Andrew, that was Simon, his brother, who Jesus called Peter. And so if you look within your own families, can you think of somebody in your very own family that doesn't know Jesus? And I can tell you that God will work through your faithfulness to proclaim the gospel because my parents are here this morning. The only way that they came to know Jesus was because of the influence of someone else in their family that loved Jesus. My sister and I became Christians. And a year later, we shared the gospel with them, and they became Christians. And then my siblings became Christians. And it was an amazing work of how the Lord was just faithful to the message of the gospel to continue to build them up. And we have plenty of people in our family that don't know Jesus that we pray for regularly. And we think of the opportunities. How can we share the gospel with them? And there are times where we hit brick walls, huh? (laughs) Sometimes we, we run straight into the wall and think, God, you just have to soften this wall. But if we keep running with the gospel, we know that he will break it down and that he will work if that is his will. 
So think of the people that you can influence in your family. Do you have a really close family member who's going through something right now that could use the encouragement and, and rest that they can receive in God? Do you have a really close friend that could embrace the gospel with hope and joy and receive life? Take the moment. Guys, you can't just pray for them. You actually have to take hold of the moment and share this news with them. You have to redeem gospel moments as you build relationships with others. And third, if if Jesus invites us to come and see him and we're to invite others to come and see God's glory through the gospel and through Jesus, a great way to do that in a very simplistic way is to invite someone to church. Invite them to come with you on a Sunday morning. Invite a friend. Invite a family member. Invite the guy you meet at the coffee shop who just starts to open up his life to you. Invite them to come to church and to hear the gospel, have lunch with them, talk about the gospel with them, and redeem that moment so that you can see God's glory on display. And, and know that it might take some time. But it all starts with an invitation. An invitation from Jesus that says, come and follow me. And the question is, will you follow him by inviting others to walk with him? And then there's a second relationship that we see develop in verses 43 through 51. And the text tells us this. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is an amazing passage right here, right? I think this is just like one of those moments where I just think Jesus like drops a mic on Nathaniel, right? He, He comes in and Nathaniel, like the question he poses to Philip, so how does Philip follow Jesus I'm going to follow the pattern of John 1. John the Baptist proclaims the gospel. He tells and he points people to Jesus, and then people follow Jesus and believe him. Andrew goes to Simon, and Simon believes in the gospel. I'm thinking Philip comes from Bethsaida, which is the same town of Andrew and Simon Peter. I'm thinking Andrew and Simon Peter were involved in inviting Philip to come and follow Jesus. And so, nonetheless, Philip continues that pattern by going to his friend Nathaniel. And what Philip says is, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and of the prophets wrote. So Jesus is the son of God who rescues us from sin, but Jesus is also the fulfillment of God's word through the revelation of scripture. He says, all of these things, the the messianic hope, the political hope that people have sought through the nation of Israel, this this coming king with almighty power and, and a great kingdom, Jesus is coming as that, but more than that, he's coming as the revelation of God's word. 
This is what John proclaimed in, in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's revelation, God's Word, the Scripture-breathed truth of God has come and revealed Himself to us. And He is the one of whom Moses has written of and whom the prophets have spoken of. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Interesting, too, that John describes Jesus as from Nazareth. Because Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, right? So he was born in a royal city of David, but he made his life in Galilee, in Nazareth. And so Joseph is from Nazareth, and, and Nathaniel hears this invitation from Philip to come and see the one who the Scriptures are coming from, and he's, he hears that he's from Galilee, from this town called Nazareth. And he's like, what good can come out of Nazareth, right? It's like, what good could come out of Amston, right? What good could come out of Colchester? Or what good could come out of Andover, right? It's, it's this like little local rivalry, right? When I was in high school, I went to Bacon Academy. You've got Ram up here. You can guess what our senior prank was. We took all of the R's off of the Ram sign, so it was ham and bacon, right? Yeah, it was brilliant. <laughs> but there was a rivalry that existed. And so Philip's question that's coming from, from his heart is one that kind of shows his sinfulness, but he's also kind of genuine in this. He's like, really, well, this guy comes from Nazareth, right? It's like when you see somebody that has grown up in your high school then become a, a professional athlete, you're like, that kid came from Colchester? Or they become president of the United States, you're like, they came from Hebron? What? And so Philip is curious, and Philip's response uh, to Nathaniel is, is Nathaniel asks him this question, hey, who is this Jesus? How can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. He repeats Jesus' very own words that he just shared with Andrew and, and Simon Peter and John, and he, he says, hey, how do I know about this? He's like, come and see, right? Friends, as we share the gospel with people, we are sharing with them this invitation for them to come and see God at work in and through us. We're like Philip and Andrew and Simon Peter and John's and ultimately like Nathaniel's. We have, to, we have to be people who say, here's the gospel, here's the good news. Now come and see. Follow me as I follow Jesus. You're going to see him at work in my life and other Christians that are around us. You're going to see him at work through the word. I'll read the Bible with you. And so Jesus sees Nathaniel coming toward him, and Jesus just drops this line. I mean, he goes, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Right? And so Jesus, as he says this line to Nathaniel, it's like a moment of fire, right? He's spitting fire back at him. He's like, What good can come out of Nazareth? Ooh, here's somebody who's not deceived, right? Here's somebody who has it all together. Uh, but Jesus wasn't calling Nathaniel out necessarily just because he thought he was uh, an arrogant man. He was calling him out because he was a type of man. The, the Israelites who were genuine in their pursuit of God but thought that they could kind of skirt by on their own motive and their own action, a lot like what we see in the Pharisees, right? Well, I know the truths of God. I know God's word. I've got this, right? It's oftentimes when we hear like new Bible preachers come into a church and they think, what, is, what, is, what can this guy tell me? Right? What is this 27-year-old pastor going to tell me that I don't already know from the Bible? I've had those conversations. Right? 
I, somebody wanted the, me to marry them. And I said, well, if you do premarital counseling. And they said, well, what can you tell me about being married? And I said, I can tell you what the Bible has to say about being married. That's what I can tell you. And that's probably worth listening to because I probably don't have great advice. I've only been married for a few years. <laughs> and my wife's awesome. So, <laughs> ta-da. <laughs> when we invite people into this conversation, and Jesus says to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And verse 48 exposes really Nathaniel's drive and his motivation. He, he looks at Jesus and he says, How do you know me? How do you know me? How do you know that that is true of me, that I think that I can skirt by on my own motive and my own ambition. I know the word, but I'm okay, right? I'm all set. I'm a New Englander. I've got this. And Jesus says to him, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you. I saw you sitting there. And Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He's been told, Nathaniel's been told, here's this amazing Jesus that you've got to come and follow. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the one that Moses has written of, that the prophets have spoken of. He is the Son of God. You've got to come and see him. And Jesus calls Nathaniel right out. He says, here's the kind of man you are, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's response to him is not one of, I'm mad at you for pointing out my sin. It's one where he says, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And Jesus says to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. <laughs> Jesus is like, I'm just getting started. And then in verse 51, it points to our scripture reading from Genesis 28. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is the amen, amen formula. It's not necessarily truly, truly. It's actually better translated. Amen, amen, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending, descending on the Son of Man. And what's the ultimate picture of the clouds of heaven being opened and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? It's the picture of the cross. The cross is an invitation for us to show people the glory of God on display through Jesus' death, then his burial, and then in him overcoming the grave and the resurrection and by inviting them to repent and believe. This is the good news we've been entrusted with. And so, our last point of application from this text this morning is that while evangelism is an invitation for us to come and follow Jesus and see God's glory, and we're to share that news with others, evangelism is also an act of faith for us to trust in God's power. So as we present the gospel, present it with clarity. Don't present the gospel as, hey, you need to trust in Jesus. Present it as, you are sinful. Here's who God is. God is holy and just. You're separated from him. But there has been a solution to the problem. Jesus has come and died in your place. For your sin, for your wrongdoing, he was buried and he rose from the grave. If you repent and believe, you can have a relationship with God. Always point them to who God is, who we are in our sinfulness, that Jesus has come is the problem or the solution to our problem, and that through this solution, if we respond in repentance and faith, we can now be right with God. This isn't the idea of just trusting in Jesus. This is the idea of repenting, of turning from our sin and turning to Jesus and then trusting him. So you have to point people to re repentance. So present the gospel with clarity. 
And then second part of that is trust God with the results. You could tell people to repent, and you know what they're going to do? Is they're going to look at you like, really? You're going to be one of those Bible thumpers? Time and time again, I've gotten that look. And friends, it doesn't stop me from sharing the gospel. Because I recognize the truth of John 1. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Friends, the gospel is good news to those who believe. To those who do not believe, it's foolishness. To those who do not believe, they think you're arrogant. But the gospel is good news to those who believe, so you keep pressing on and share it with clarity and trust that God will indeed bring results. Because you don't save people. I don't save people. God saves people. And the last step is, as we think through the gospel, as we proclaim this good news, as we invite others to follow Jesus, church, our church needs to be impacted by the gospel. Not just because we're seeing new converts come to Christianity, but because we, as seasoned, matured Christians, or new church members and established church members, we still need the gospel. The gospel has to move us on. It has to push us forward. It has to be what we put down on paper, and then it has to be what we put into practice. And so what does the practice of the gospel look like? It looks like confessing our sin, that we don't have it together, that we're like Nathaniel, and we think sometimes we can scoot by on our own ambition and our own knowledge. The gospel is relying on Jesus' power to rescue us again and again. Make a regular practice of repentance and say, hey, you know what? This week, it was a good week, yeah, but I was a horrible, miserable sinner. And here's how. I was angry, and I shouldn't have been angry. I was selfish, and I shouldn't have been selfish. You know what? I really wanted to see the decision in the next members meeting go this way because I I desired this, but that's not the way that everybody else wanted it to go, so I I was cranky about it. We continue to make a regular practice of repentance as we continue to run to the gospel in the life of our church. We'll see the gospel bring about an amazing Amazing healing, amazing truth, amazing presence of God. It doesn't come because we have all of our music perfect or because we've got a preacher who's got it all together. It comes because God works through imperfect people, through a perfect message and a perfect Savior in Christ our King, crucified and resurrected in our repentance and in our faith and belief. So bring it back to the gospel and your conversations. How can you see God's grace? How is God working and convicting you of sin? How are you responding to God's word and truth? Am I sitting by and chewing on it, or am I acting in confession, repentance, and faith? We have to trust God to do what only he can do, to build his church, to make new Christians, and to bring his glory. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that in the gospel we have hope. Thank you that you have sent us to Go out and invite others to come and see forgiveness in Jesus. God, the gospel is a message in which we find great joy. We have been redeemed. So God, as your people, as we sing this last song in response, the song, Oh, How I Need You. God, would you help us to sing as a people who have been redeemed, knowing that, yes, we need Jesus, and in him we found salvation. God, it's also a message in which we look forward to knowing 
that you've chosen us and set us apart so that we would suffer for your sake. So help us to meet suffering with joy, knowing that while everything might not be perfect, we rest in the hands of the sovereign king, the lamb of God, the rescuer, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I'm going to invite you all to stand and sing with us as we sing.